Chapter 9 of Ashton Kirk Investigator by John Thomas McIntyre. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pete Milan. Chapter 9 Miss Vale Tells What She Knows. Ashton Kirk arose, kicked aside the litter of newspapers, and placed a chair for his visitor. Your man told me that I was expected, she said. How did you know that I would come this morning? I knew that you'd be sure to read the newspapers, said he, and I was pretty confident as to the effect the Star's account would have. She sat down quietly, and for a few moments did not speak. A slight trembling of the lower lip was the only indication of the strain under which she was laboring. Finally, she said, I am very sorry that I deceived you yesterday morning. He waved his hand lightly. I was not deceived, so there was no harm done, he explained. She began tugging nervously at her gloves, much as she had done a few mornings before. Her face was still composed, but deep in her beautiful eyes, was an expression of fear. I might have known that I could not do it, she said. But the impulse came to me to deny everything as the easiest and safest way out of it all, and I obeyed it. I was not calm enough to consider the possible harm that it might do. However, and her firm voice broke a little, I suppose the newspapers would have ferreted out the facts in any event. They are very keen in the pursuit of anything that promises a good story, agreed the investigator. But if you had given me the facts as you intended doing when you called me on the phone yesterday morning, I'd have had twenty-four hours start of them at least. She leaned toward him earnestly. I am going to be frank with you now, she said, and perhaps it is not yet too late. I did intend telling you everything when I telephoned you, but, as I have said, the impulse came to hide it instead. It was fear, said Ashton Kirk, and was, perhaps, perfectly natural under the circumstances. When I left you two mornings ago, said Miss Vale, I felt easier in my mind than I had in months before. From what I had heard of you, I felt sure that the little problem which I had set you would prove absurdly simple. This feeling clung to me all day. I was light and happy, and astonished my aunt, Mrs. Page, by consenting to go with her to Mrs. Barron's that night, a thing that I had been refusing to do for a long time. Late in the afternoon, Alan, Mr. Morris, came. As soon as I saw him, I knew that something had happened, or was about to happen. There was no color in his face. His eyes had a feverish glitter, his voice was high-pitched and excited. But I did not let him see that I noticed this. I talked to him quietly about a score of things, and by a most circuitous route approached the matter that interested me most. Our marriage. To my surprise, he plunged into the subject with the greatest eagerness. Before that, as I have told you, he always did his best to avoid it. The least mention of it seemed to sadden him, to cause him pain. But now he discussed it excitedly. 
Apparently it was no longer a dim, far-off thing, but one which he saw very clearly. As you may imagine, I was both astonished and delighted. But this was only at first. In a little while I noticed something in his tone, in his manner, in his feverish eyes that I did not like. She paused for a moment. Ashton Kirk clasped his knee with both hands and regarded her with interest. It was a sort of subdued fierceness, continued Miss Vale, as though he were setting his face against some invisible force and defying it. When he mentioned our happiness that was to be, I could see his hands close tightly. I could read menace in the set of his jaw. As he was going, he said to me, There has been something, a something that you've never been able to understand, keeping us apart. But it is about at an end. Human nature endures a great deal sometimes, but its endurance does not last forever. Tonight, my dear, puts an end to my endurance. I am going to show what I should have shown long ago, that I'm a man. Then he went away, and I was frightened. All sorts of possibilities presented themselves to me, vague, indefinite, formless terrors. I tried to shake them off, but could not. It became firmly fixed in my mind that something was going to happen, that Alan was about to... to... Here the steady voice faltered once more. To take a step that would bring danger upon him. And that night I went to Mrs. Barron's as I had promised. I talked to people, I laughed, I even danced. But never for a moment did the fear cease gripping at my heart. At last I could stand it no longer. I felt that I must go to where this danger was confronting Alan. And as the house in Christie Place was the first that arose in my mind, I went there. I saw the cab upon the opposite side of the street, and the driver of it looked at me so hard that I drove on without stopping, as the newspaper states. But my courage came back in a few moments. I returned and went in. You halted on the stairs said Ashton Kirk. Why? Because I saw a light moving about in the hallway above, answered Miss Vale. Then she added, But how did you know that I stopped upon the stairs? I did not know it, replied Ashton Kirk. In his story, the cab driver says you entered at Hume's door and went upstairs. I have found that the position which his cab occupied at the time was fully fifteen feet west of Hume's doorway making it impossible for him to see whether you went up at once or not. In the face of what immediately followed your entrance, or rather what is said to have followed it, I thought it reasonable to suppose that you had stopped. Thank you, said Miss Vale. You say there was a light moving about, but what else did you see? Nothing. But you heard something. Yes. The revolver shot and then the dreadful cry that followed it. Ashton Kirk unclasped his hands from about his knee, placed them upon the arms of his chair, and leaned forward. But between the two, after the shot and before the cry, you heard a door close. He said. She gave a little gasp of surprise. I did, she said. I remember it distinctly now that you mention it. 
It closed sharply, but not very loudly. The investigator leaned back and began drumming upon the arm of his chair with his long, supple fingers. Experience never quite takes away that comfortable feeling of satisfaction that the proving of a theory gives one, said he. I suppose it is a sort of reward that nature reserves for effort. And he smiled at his beautiful visitor's puzzled look, and went on. The cab driver says that the cry resembled that of a parrot or cockatoo. What do you think? It was not unlike their scream, said Miss Vale. But I was too startled to think of comparing it to anything at the time. What happened after you heard this cry? I waited for some little time, part way up the stairs. Then the light which I had seen glancing over the walls and across the ceiling seemed to halt and die down. After this there was a pause, a stoppage of everything, and fear took possession of me. Suppose Alan had really intended visiting the place. Suppose he had preceded me. Suppose something dreadful had just happened, something in which he had had a part. Filled with thoughts like these, I ascended the remaining stairs. There was a light shining through the lettered glass of the door at the front, but the hall was deserted. The far end was thick with shadows. I tried the door where the light was, but it was fast. The door nearest the stairs was open. I entered by that, and passed into the front room through a communicating doorway. Then I saw the... the body. Turned out the light, ran stumbling through the rooms and down the stairs. Why did you turn out the light? asked the investigator. I don't know. Partly, I suppose, to shut the awful thing upon the floor from my sight. And partly. She stopped, but Ashton Kirk completed the sentence for her. And partly with the confused idea that you might hide the deed from public gaze, and in that way save Alan Morris from the consequences of his crime, said he. At this she sprang up, her hands outstretched appealingly, the fear now plain in her face. No, no! she cried. He is not guilty! He did not do it! My dear young lady, said Ashton Kirk soothingly, control yourself. Don't forget that before this thing is ended you will probably need all the self-command you can summon. Then, as she resumed her seat, he added, I did not say that he was guilty. I was merely telling you of the formless thought that you had in mind when you turned out the light. She sat staring at him, the horror of it all still in her eyes. Then she nodded her head slowly, and said in a husky voice, Yes, that is what I thought, and that is why I called you on the telephone. I thought you would pity me and show me some way of covering it all up. But after I had your promise to come, I was seized with the fear that you might... that you might betray him. That is, I suppose, the real reason why I tried to deceive you. In my terror, I myself thought Ellen guilty. But of course, now that I have had time to calmly think it over, I know he was not. 
But he couldn't be. No one who knows him will believe he did it. What reason had you for thinking that he might be guilty? His manner during the afternoon before the murder? He seemed so fiercely resolved, so different from his usual self. I understand. And what makes you think now that he is innocent? I believe it because I understand his nature, said Miss Vale earnestly. He might be finally aroused. Under provocation, he might even be violent. But he could never do a thing like this. It is too utterly horrible. You have judged that it was probably he who was seen to go into Hume's before the murder. Yes. Hume was alive when Berg closed up his shop. He was dead when you entered his showroom a half hour or so later. Therefore, he must have met his death while the cab driver Sams sat on his box across the street. Now, while Morris was seen to go in, it is not at all positive that he was the man who came out. We are not sure that he was not present when the crime was committed. Miss Vale reared her head proudly. Is it possible, she said, that you are trying to fix this deed upon Alan Morris? I am trying to find the real truth answered Ashton Kirk gravely. Police, said Miss Vale, according to the newspapers, thought that the criminal gained admission by way of the roof. This may or may not be so, but I think it is pretty evident that he made his way out in that manner. I was on the stairs while he was in the hall. He fled, but as he did not pass me, he must have gone upwards. If Alan Morris had done this murder, he would not have thought of this. Not knowing the section, he would have been ignorant as to where the roof would lead. But if Spatola were the man who remained, it would have been different. Do the papers not say that he lives in a garret or loft in the same block? How easy it would have been for him to pass out upon the roof of 478 after the crime, and then over the housetops of the block until he came to a scuttle which perhaps led into his very attic. That, said Ashton Kirk, is very well conceived. But it has one weakness. You are not sure that the murderer did ascend to the roof after the crime. He may have been lurking in the shadows which you say were lying so thickly at the end of the hall. He may have been watching you as you discovered the body, while you ran down the hall once more and down the stairs. To be sure, you slammed the door behind you and so locked it. But like all spring or latch locks, it could be readily opened from the inside. No one else came out while the cab driver waited, but that was only for another fifteen minutes, according to his own statement. The murderer could easily have waited until he had gone and then slipped out, also locking the door after him. Miss Vale sat staring at the speaker dumbly for a space. Then she asked in a dry, expressionless way, And do you really think this is what happened? Ashton Kirk shook his head. No, said he. I merely mentioned it to show you that it is difficult to be sure of anything in a matter like this. Until, with a smile, you are sure. It is one of the things that may have happened, but it is also open to question. A criminal whose crime has been discovered does not ordinarily linger upon the scene. You had just fled with the terror of the thing fresh upon you. 
How did he know but that you might scream it out to everyone you met? Again she looked at him mutely. Then she said, What then is your theory of the crime? I have a number of possibilities at this moment, he said. Of course there is one to which I give the preference, but until a thing is proven beyond question, it is my rule never to outline my theories. Before Miss Vale left, she had implored him to do all he could to clear the matter up, for her sake and for Morris's. Of course, she said in conclusion, I now understand that the entire matter will get into the papers. It is too late to prevent that. But it is not too late for you to fix the guilt where it belongs. And I have every confidence that you will do it. If I had not... And her voice quavered pitifully. I don't know what I should do. I will do what I can. Success sometimes comes easily. Sometimes one is forced to fight hard for it. But rest assured that I will do what I can. She was going. He held the library door open for her while the gray-faced stump waited in the hall. It will perhaps be necessary for me to see Mr. Morris sometime during the course of the day, said Ashton Kirk, as an afterthought. Would it be convenient for you to let him know that I can be seen at six? The fear that his soothing words had driven from her eyes swept back into them. He saw her tremble and steady herself against the doorframe. I cannot let him know, she said. I have not seen him since... since the time I have mentioned... I have waited, telephoned, sent messages, even gone in person. But I could not find him. No one seems to know anything of his whereabouts. End of chapter 9